to my effervescent family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin Mercurio on the mic, and welcome to the Season 3 premiere and the 21st episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. Oh, I'm back with a packed season of words, metaphors, idioms, and the origins of their creation, along with communication concepts ranging from academic ghostwriting to consulting to social media to language and academia versus industry, and more. Show support if you like this sort of content. Please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. And follow at Metaphorogens on Instagram. That's at Metaphorogens, where I'll be posting most of my updates as well as on my personal website, kjbmercurio.com slash Metaphorogens. Just a reminder, I will hold another draw on my 30th episode for the beautiful butterfly-printed custom Metaphorogen shirt, so stay tuned for that. Again, super excited to roll out some new content in a new format with special guests every episode, so do let me know if this vibes with you. Okay, so for today's episode, I'm going to discuss an idiomatic concept that we come across throughout our entire life, from early education to professional settings with unfamiliar origins to race entertainment. As usual, let's set up the scene. You're one of the elite shape-aside investigators of the Brokeline 99 precinct. Now, you might be wondering what a shape-aside investigator is. You live in a universe similar to Edward A. Abbott's Flat World, in which your reality is a two-dimensional instead of three. Now, there are some specific rules such a world consists of. I will only mention the relevant ones. All things, materials, animals, even people in this world are shapes. For sight, because your eyes are leveled with every object, vision is dependent on depth perception. For example, a triangle and a square coming towards you from their sides are indistinguishable until they rotate so that one of their vertices or points faces you directly and based on how quickly their adjacent sides fade towards their back, which is proportional to their angles, one would then be able to determine their shape. Lastly, social status is dependent on the number of vertices you have, and contrary to Abbott's two-dimensional universe, social status favors less points. In your reality, single points, known as singularities, and rounded shapes, known as infinities, do not exist. So the social hierarchy starts at peasant hexagons, six vertices, and move up towards royal lines, two vertices. A shape-aside investigator deals with cases in which a shape has been killed, either by another shape or unknown means. Currently, your precinct is investigating the murder of the Duchess of Shape Hatton and the kidnapping of her daughter, Verticali. Your chief calls the entire precinct into the large meeting room for a debriefing. <clears throat> As you may know, one of the royal lines was murdered three days ago, the funeral was held yesterday, and we still don't have a suspect, neither do we know where her 14th month daughter Verticali is located. Someone is trying to instigate round war three in our district, and it's up to us to put a stop to it. Investigator Rombison will go over some new information we have. Investigator? Yes, thank you, Chief. Myself, Investigator Trisosceles, and the newbie, that's you, have compiled a new report which you should all find on your desk this morning. In it is the following. 
We already know that it was blunt point trauma that killed the Duchess. We aren't sure yet whether it was a murder weapon or a physical body violence that instigated the murder. An interesting note is that this occurred around 2 a.m. at the Duchess's secret downtown complex, which only family, close friends, and the law enforcement know about. This points to perhaps a relative who may be jealous of her status. But again, all options are on the table. What are the new leads? The chief asks. Who is up for an interview today? The newbie is going to the Duke's residence to interview him. Actually, newbie, why don't you go right now? Myself and investigator Trisosceles can finish up the debrief. You head out of the precinct and drive your car to the Duke's residence. How does driving work in 2D, you might ask? I don't know. Use your imagination. The Duke is waiting for you at the front door and ushers you in the living room for the discussion. You start. Thank you, Duke, for meeting me, and I am terribly sorry for your loss. This is why I'm here, to help find the murderer that killed your wife. Thank you, and yes, I have been itching to tell an investigator about my account of that night. Please go on, and be as detailed as possible. Well, I woke up at around 2 a.m. and noticed that she was not sleeping in bed with me. We had boxfish that night, you see, and I think that hers was not cooked to perfection, as she was up late quite ill. As I headed to the living quarters where we are now, I saw that I could only describe as a singularity. You stare in confusion. A singularity? With all due respect, Duke, those are just legend. Perhaps it was a line that knew how to angle itself in case someone stepped into the room. I know, I know, the Duke stammers. But it just happened so fast that I am almost certain I saw a singularity. As a line, I know when I've seen a line, and this was not of royal line blood. It moved quickly out the door as I ran to the Duchess, who had already been punctured and was unconscious. She died shortly after. Just then, a beep on your phone indicated that you've received a message. You reach into your side pocket and press the button that transmits the message to your glasses. It reads... Meet at the deadline in 20 minutes, or else verticality will never be seen again. You press the same button as well as another. I'm sorry, Duke. I have to go. Please stay in your residence and don't speak to anyone else yet. You exit the Duke's residence and drive as fast as you can to the Shapehatton Cemetery. You get there in 15 minutes and run as fast as you can to the Duchess's tombstone. Shocked, you see Investigator Trisosceles waiting for you. Did you get the same message, you ask? No, newbie. I'm the one who sent it to you. What the hell is going on? You panic, realizing you left your gun in the glove compartment. For years the lines have ruled over us other shapes. They think that they are vastly smarter, more cunning, and more powerful than the rest of us. I hated them for my entire upbringing, and I'm here to convince you to hate them as well. You start realizing how his sides fade into the back very quickly, and how sharp his frontal vertex is. He's a rare isosceles triangle with an incredibly small inner angle. He is the one that killed the Duchess using this point. He continued, As a hexagon, I'm surprised you haven't lived a life of crime, newbie. You were raised well, and rose through the ranks at the precinct quickly. Once you were put on the case, I knew this was my chance. Why are you doing this? What's your end goal, kidnapping a 14th month line, you ask? Round War 3. It's the revolution. 
All complete shapes will stand up to the aristocracy and equalize the playing field. We want equality, and we will stop at nothing until we get it. Are you with me? You pause and press a button on your phone, and then another. Did you get that, Investigator Rombison? In your earpiece, you hear, loud and clear, the chief heard it as well. We surrounded the cemetery and are closing in on your location. A few seconds later, half the precinct encircles Investigator Trisosceles, who surrenders. The 14-month-old Verticali was found in a car on the perimeter of the cemetery and returned to the Duke and his family. Case closed. All right, let's jump back into our three spatial dimensions. You might have missed it, but this word or concept is used frequently when performing duties for school projects or assigned tasks at work in order to have a coordinated flow of progress. But why are times in which responsibilities are expected to be completed associated with something as arbitrary as the mortality of a simple two-dimensional object? What is the origin of the word deadline? Most of this information was obtained from various articles discussing the different origins and contexts of when this term was used. All sources we mentioned in the description. This podcast, I've realized, is nothing but an excuse. Yes, an excuse. An excuse to set up a framework for which I can follow in order to do something I find interesting and important. A method that eases my mind coming to grips with doing something not particularly related to professional endeavors, but those of creativity and hobby. A sort of reason for not having something of priority done at an earlier time. A purpose for procrastination. How many of you listening are hardcore procrastinators? This should come to no surprise, especially if you are like me, pursuing higher level education. Hopefully you're not procrastinating right now, and if you are, don't sweat it. To even fuel that procrastination, there's a great TED Talk by co-creator of the Wait But Why blog, Tim Urban, about the instant gratification monkey grabbing control of your procrastinating brain. He says the following, which I still smile about to this day, quote, Yes, it has always been a dream of mine to have done a TED Talk in the past. We procrastinate often, at least most of us, because we are often inundated with today's term, deadlines. A deadline defined by Lexico.com is, quote, the latest time or date by which something should be completed. Anyone who has attended school, anyone who has hosted a party pre-pandemic, anyone who has planned for literally anything has had to set a deadline. Imagine what life would be like if we, as a civilization of human beings, never set deadlines. Would we even have a civilization progressing to the ever more advancement of technology and the understanding of reality itself? FYI, I wouldn't Google the latter unless you want to further procrastinate into the Wikipedia rabbit hole. The importance of deadlines in today's sense are always overlooked. Deadlines and keeping to them remain one of the most important factors of grading an employee's performance or a student's academic standing, meaning deadlines can be synonymous with being punctual too, attending or participating in some event by being there at the time and location specified prior to it. 
Let's continue with an experiment. Say the term deadline multiple times. Deadline. Deadline. I'm emphasizing yes, but asked by medium blog creator of Word Origins, quote, why do we have such a violent word deadline for the relatively innocuous concept of time limit? I wonder the same thing. Turns out, even subreddits of etymology, yes, we logophiles do congregate sometimes, there seems to be disputes about the origin of deadline. In regards to its figurative meaning today, the term deadline originated from printing and newspaper culture. Worldhistories.net denotes the text and newspaper, the Rotarian, using the term back in 1913 in advice by writer J.C. Burton. Quote, Get your story in early. Don't wait until the deadline when the local room is in chaos. It is liable to be forgotten and abandoned when a big murder story breaks. This metaphorical meaning can also be attributed to as far back as 1887, published in another Texan newspaper, the Fort Worth Daily Gazette, about an interstate commerce law. Quote, A newspaper item says the Atkinson, Topeka, and Santa Fe Road's new plan of having train collectors, whose sole duty is to collect tickets and fares and passes until the deadline of April 5th, misprint for April 1st, is reached has resulted in a large increase of receipts, whatever that means. This wasn't the first time deadline was adopted by newspaper circles. Grammophobia also mentions the term was also used as, quote, a guideline marked on the bed of a printing press. Essentially, a deadline was sort of like a margin line on your Microsoft Word document. If you were able to write past this margin, printers would not be able to print those words and they would die, evaporating into the letter realm. Sadly, however, this idea of death in conjunction with this term has more literal meaning to it. In fact, there is evidence that the term originates from the brutality of the American Civil War. In an article for HistoryNet, lexicographer Christine Ammer discusses various terms with roots to this time period. Interestingly, another dead prefixed word, deadbeat, was also attributed to the Civil War, referring to, quote, a soldier who would not carry his weight. Here, dead meaning absolute or perfect can be traced to other expressions like dead ringer and dead giveaway. We progress now into more morbid stories, particularly the cloudy origin to the innocuous deadline term we use today. In a well-written article published in Merriam-Webster, they define the original meaning of a deadline first recorded around the 1860s. Quote, A line drawn within or around a prison that a prisoner passes at the risk of being shot. Even worse, due to the extremely poor conditions of these prisons, not only due to wickedness, but to chaotic management of various leadership roles, prisoners were often driven mad with hopelessness, crossing deadlines as the only logical means of reducing hardship. A memorial addressed to President Abraham Lincoln by writer Thomas Prentice Cattell states, quote, They are fast losing hope and becoming utterly reckless of life. Numbers, crazed by their sufferings, wander around in a state of idiocy. Others deliberately cross the deadline and are remorselessly shot down. Note, these were prisons of both the Union and Confederate armies, but usually attributed to one particular Confederate prison in Andersonville, Georgia. Here, Christine Ammer continues, was, quote, the first written record of the word, which appeared in an 1864 report by Confederate Colonel D.T. Chandler and was later incorporated into the congressional record. It read, quote, the federal prisoners are confined within a stockade 15 feet high. 
A railing around the inside of the stockade and about 20 feet from it constitutes the deadline, beyond which prisoners are not allowed to pass. A prisoner who crossed this line was summarily shot. Other sources like Mental Floss attribute the term to another Confederate general, Heinrich Hartmann Wiers, written in great length within the report of the Secretary of War of 1865, who was tried and hung for crimes against the state. Nonetheless, its origin is deeply rooted in the atrocities of war. We are now here, in the present moment of year 2021. This episode is not to have us reflect on whether this term should be used, but like I said previously, and why I love doing this podcast, knowing where unique terms originate from inspire an odd sense of purpose. I am here, attempting to make deadlines despite frequent procrastination because courageous people demanded equality and argued for years about why they deserve it. This tenacity for social justice of past pioneers can be seen today, spotlighting unbalanced systems governing society. I am forever grateful and acknowledge the history that brought about the modern world. Before we get to the next segment, do you love listening to podcasts? If you're like myself, you may have contemplated even starting a podcast yourself. Let me tell you, as one of the many ways one can creatively express themselves, starting this podcast was one of the best decisions I have ever made. For one thing, it sort of gives you an excuse to learn about things you actually are interested in and understand it by speaking to an audience about it. For another, it has given me the opportunity to meet other podcasters and other science communicators who inspire me in their own creative endeavors. The problem in starting something new is that it may be difficult to know where to start. That's where Buzzsprout comes in. Buzzsprout is a seamless service that helps one launch a professional podcast with over 100,000 people supported on their platform. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. Additionally, you get a sweet-looking podcast website, detailed analytics to support the growth of your show, by far the greatest feature, methods of promoting and marketing your show, the list goes on. And of course, the Buzzsprout community of experts and podcast hosts offers great tips via online forums, YouTube videos, and even quick podcast episodes themselves. To start your own podcast and get a $20 Amazon gift card you can use towards simple podcast equipment you may need, Click the affiliate link in the episode's description. This lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you to their service and will help support Metaforgins in money towards creating more butterfly merch. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. And now, back to the episode. For this communication segment, I would like to speak about something that has plagued me for a long time. Simplified, it's the common adolescent saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. As a podcast in which language is ruminated on until it cannot be ruminated on any longer, hopefully this segment will speak to you. Since I was a child, I've wrestled with this statement a lot. Logically speaking, this makes sense, as physical violence via blunt force trauma would inevitably break bone. But words literally can't physically harm you. Therefore, by adapting this mantra as a universal law, one can become incredibly powerful without ever learning to throw or dodge a punch. 
Think about it. Surely I'm not the only one who played this inner game with themselves. This game of convincing oneself that the sunken heart feeling emerging after someone with higher perceived physical or social power says something derisive. Most people talk about actual emotions when speaking about the aftermath of ridicule, like sadness and anger. Little attention is paid to the physical manifestations of these emotions. Did you ever get the sunken heart feeling? What about the feeling of your lungs trying to gasp for some oxygen in an obviously open environment? The pins and needles in your legs as you shrink into empty space. Now, of course, rhetoric can be used as an opposite force. Phrases that can bring a smile to your face, written in just the right way. Statements that supplant ideas and connect with other ideas in your head, like you're the target of inception. Speeches that build the foundation, helping you stand on shattered legs, broken by oppressive systems. It's human nature to remember words with weight. Words are tantalizingly interesting. They are the superposition of imagery and audio. Perhaps in a future episode, I will return to a positive aspect of language. Here, I want to focus on the antonym, its destructive aspect. For years, language has been utilized in almost military precision at every stage of a person's life. Take learning how to behave from a parent or teacher, to the sly coolness we all personify with a crush, to the professionalism projected in a job interview. Everything we say comes from somewhere, some place in the mind that can list the reasons for why a word or words were used at this particular moment, excluding speech deficiencies, of course. We even devise new words to describe things or people, and these words are given weight based on how they are used. Are they used to inspire or deteriorate? This is no more blatantly clear in the context of discrimination, words created to distinguish and nullify the humanity of others. Humans from the very beginning have categorized and isolated groups of people, ordered them on an invisible hierarchy from best to worst. If you're at the top, well, congratulations, you just hit the biological lottery. Otherwise, you were placed below a group or groups from the very beginning. How strange is that? How peculiar is it that you have to prove your worth of the life given more so than another, given the exact same opportunity? These categories are slowly emerging from the ether. I'll admit I've always been disinterested in labels we give ourselves based on race, sexuality, or class. In the end, we're all human beings who are driven by attraction, driven by the pursuit of subjective happiness. Yet, there are words out there that remind us of how forgetful we are of this fact. In relation to today's metaphor, I will emphasize the struggle we continue to face with racial discrimination. The case I would like to draw attention to is the incident that occurred at the University of Ottawa in September of 2020. I will tread lightly here because I want to be absolutely clear this is not a gossip podcast. The specifics of the story will be omitted because I know, even from the awareness I have of myself, that people tend to focus on names of other people. It's human nature. I need us to focus on intention, consequences, and the aftermath. Only then, I've realized, can opinions be introspected and perhaps changed. Summarized in a CBC article published well after the incident on October 21st, quote, the University of Ottawa suspended a part-time professor last month after learning they had used arguably the most destructive word in the English language during a class discussion. Because of this, quote, the university has since reinstated them and offered students from their art and gender class an alternative course. 
only one has chosen to remain in their class. The professor in question, quote, explained during the interview that they use the word during a discussion about groups who reappropriate or reclaim words and phrases previously used to disparage or oppress. In the UOttawa newspaper Fulcrum article written shortly after the incident describes how the situation spiraled. Quote, a leaked email from a University of Ottawa professor apologizing for using a racial slur in class was posted on Twitter and was quickly sparked outrage within the university community. Basically, a student leaked a screenshot of an email where the professor was apologizing for using a racial slur in class, stating, quote, At you, Ottawa, please teach professors to not say arguably the most destructive word in the English language, so I don't have to thanks in capitals. Further, the professor is finally given the opportunity to defend themselves despite the online firestorm brewing, stating, quote, I explained in a lesson over the major theories in feminist, gender, and sexuality studies what queer theory is. I clarified that the term queer is an example of subversive resignification. That is to say, a word which was first an insult, which has been reappropriated, emptied of its initial meaning, and resignified as a powerful marker of identity. I gave two other examples of this subversive resignification, the word cripple, resignified by crip theory, and arguably the most destructive word in the English language, resignified by the black community. Also included in the article, an anonymous student in the class weighs in, saying, quote, The way they handled it, I didn't really feel like they took the time to educate themselves about why it was wrong. They kind of opened it up to a discussion and made it seem like it's something that can be debated. They asked, What do you guys think? Should we be allowed to use this word in our discussions? There were people, myself included, in the Zoom chat function giving their take on it, and the majority were saying that, no, you shouldn't be saying that, it's not acceptable, and it's not a discussion open for anybody, it's a decision for people of color, said the student. Outrage continues to climb. Other Twitter users weigh in. Then, more members of the Ottawa student community. The president of the newly formed University of Ottawa Student Union submits a very well-written open letter to the editor of the Fulcrum. In it, the student president writes, quote, We are shaped by our institutions, conditioned by the dominant culture to see whiteness as the norm. Many of those who defend this in the name of academic freedom lack the humility to acknowledge that at some point their opinions and feelings should have far less value than those directly and continuously affected by it. Though unwittingly, they have behaved carelessly, discounting the active psychological damage the word continues to create on black students when uttered. The student president educates readers of black history and the present circumstances experienced by the black community. The student president also speaks about the unwarranted support from faculty about academic freedom. Quote, a lot has been said of the 34 professors who had written the letter that had ignited the media firestorm and the seemingly overwhelming support they have received. Consider the lack of diversity in the list of nearly 600 teachers and professors who had written a petition of support to the Liberté Servier letter. Only 0.5% of signees were black. Further, the student president highlights key occurrences instigated by racial discrimination before and after this particular incident, one of racially charged carding done by UOttawa security personnel, and the other of printers at the university being hacked to print racially charged messages. The whole letter is informative and professional, while also delivering the seriousness of where the university finds itself. 
the university was already in the midst of organizing committees to determine its issues in racial discrimination from the carding cases. It now sees itself sending messages shortly after the incident of interest, week after week, asking the community to appeal for calm. As an institution, it failed to provide an informative answer to the thousands of students only hearing bits and pieces from social media fronts. This is just a quick summary of what happened, my own summary, which gave me the information I needed to address conflicting ideas in my head. On the one hand, all things need to be discussed, despite how disgustingly amoral the subject matter is. On the other hand, should words that were created to break the minds of its recipients be uttered without second thought? That last point is what made me need to discuss this incident in long form, and ultimately is a resounding point of this podcast in general. Words need to be used with military precision. The fact that arguably the most destructive word in the English language was said without hesitation, without potential thought of isolating others, is careless at best. At worst, it's insensitive to the hundreds of years of people's lives being subjected to a lower standard of living despite the equal opportunity every person in every group is given, life. And rationalized, this probably goes hand in hand with a kind of privilege that people outside the BIPOC community inherit from the very beginning. One of the few things I disagreed with about the student president's open letter was the following statement, quote, However, I don't recommend you needlessly subject your students to unnecessary and potentially damaging conversations. It is this suggestion that the student president misjudged by assuming that the use of arguably the most destructive word in the English language is always used with the intent to be destructive. Perhaps that professor, like many people outside the BIPOC community, are the real-life embodiment of that saying about sticks and stones. For the intent was education, but the delivery was ignorance. For today's episode, I'll be interviewing someone I believe is doing outstanding research while also a science communicator and advocate for Black and STEM. He is a conservation biologist and PhD student at the University of Ottawa. His research investigates the effects of climate change and habitat loss on pollinators like bumblebees and butterflies, with the goal of finding better tools to help prevent species extinctions and biodiversity loss. He is passionate about science communication and improving equity, diversity, and inclusion in the spaces he's in, two things that he believes are essential for making science stronger and more accessible. Please welcome the science superstar in the making, Peter Chaurier. So I'm glad that you were able to join me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm excited for, for our conversation and to hear the rest of the, uh, the season moving forward. So just for the listeners uh, out there, um, I've known Peter. I've known him since 2018. Like we, weren't, we aren't like 
close friends or anything, but we did take a, um, a science communication course offered at the University of Ottawa. Um, we had the opportunity to be a part of the first cohort. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we were the first um, students in that class. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, along with thirty other, around thirty other students there, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it kind of taught us a lot about different aspects of science communication. Taught us how to communicate science to a lay audience. Uh, gave us tips and tricks on how to do that uh, in an engaging, um, informative way. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was it was a really nice course kind of gave me inspiration for the project such as this, uh, a podcast about science communication, a podcast about communication in general, language, um, and kind of put my own creative spin on it based on the writing I do. But yeah, so so Peter, he's a, a super researcher, a super involved in science communication. Um, and I, I introduced him uh, before this segment, just but just to reiterate, he's a PhD student in biology at the University of Ottawa, supervised by um, Dr. Jeremy Kerr, who I think is also a great communicator of science. He's an advocate for Black and STEM, an advocate for science communication in general. Um, and just to, uh, <laughs> to also toot your horn a bit, uh, I, I noticed that you were in Science Slam Canada. I... Um, participated in the grand slam uh last year oh no way yeah and i watched some of your videos just to kind of like get (laughs) some get some tips and tricks myself on how to deliver such a such a presentation so i i liked your i liked your size slam piece about taste and why you enjoy food so much thank you thank you i'm sad (laughs) i missed i was in london for that grand slam but uh, okay okay oh man that's that's too funny what a like small world (laughs) small world yeah yeah but um, maybe you can just give the listeners uh, another, just a, your own brief overview about um, your experience in science, uh, maybe your, your bachelor's or master's if, if relevant, um, mm-hmm. and stuff you're doing now in terms of your PhD project and the science communication extracurricular, extracurriculars you do. Thanks for, the, thanks for the intro. Now I have a lot to look <laughs> I always hype my guests up. That was, that was awesome. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Peter. I'm doing my PhD right now in biology. I did my undergrad in, in biology as well at the University of Ottawa, um, although I started out in, in biomedical sciences. And then in my second year, I took an ecology course, and I was like, oh, man, this is what I, I, I switched in and, and never looked back. But uh, yeah, for in terms of, I guess, like science communication, I've always enjoyed it, been like immersed in it a little bit. I remember like as a kid, we would go to science centers, um, Shout out like Science North in, in Sudbury. Being, you know, seeing science communication, seeing people like get really excited about it and communicate these like really wild concepts or ideas or facts was something that always like had a bit of, big impact on me, I guess. Um, and when I started my grad school in, in 2016, that was, uh, I immediately started doing Let's Talk Science. And then a couple years later, we were in that course together. And that was like the first kind of formal training that I had on the subject. And it was really eye-opening, kind of different techniques and different things to think about for, for being engaging and effective with science communication. So that's been, yeah, so that was that was really cool. I, was that your first time as well in kind of a formal science communication course? Yeah, I would say so. Like my, my supervisor for my master's was is a big advocate for communicating science, um, delivering scientific presentations. Um, so I just kind of learned off of the tips and tricks that she gave me and the other students in my lab. Um, but in terms of an actual lecture, I would say that was the first time I was ever told, like, oh, this is something you could do. Um, this is, like, the stuff that the stars in science communication do and, and people in less talk science do. So it was great. It was a great training course, I would say. 
Yeah, it was great. The the practical aspect too. I thought that was like unique as well. Being thrown into these like and then like really unique situations, like the media interview. Right. We had like some journalists come in and interview us for that. Like a real journalist. Yeah, a real journalist. At the time, that was something completely new. And now, like last year, I had a big paper come out that had some waves and kind of the media and all of those lessons from that course like that was exactly <laughs> the sort of thing that i was doing with you know like with npr or, or nat geo or something so it was like crazy relevant and uh and really unique in that way like maybe if you can just uh, summarize the i know the paper you're talking about is the, the paper in science that came out last year maybe just to summarize just the overall findings you you and the dr kerr got from it yeah, definitely. So I, uh, I'm a conservation biologist, and most of my work looks at trying to predict extinction risk in, in different animals across the globe. And uh, I focus a lot on pollinators like bumblebees. And um, so last year, we had a paper that came out with myself, Professor Kerr, and a collaborator in the UK, Professor Tim Newbold. In that paper, we, were, we looked at about 120 years of, of bumblebee observations across North America and Europe, different records of of these bumblebees, looked at how they were changing, how their uh, trends in extinction or colonization were changing over time in those animals, and found they were declining. And this was related especially to climate change, and in particular to what we called climate chaos, um, this idea of climate change making extreme events more frequent and more severe. So we were able to highlight areas of risk and, and suggest different things we could do to help protect species in those areas. Very cool, very cool. And uh, a question I had for you, actually, just in terms of language, because that's what this podcast really is, like your thoughts on the word climate change versus something like global warming, for example. And there mm. are like there are a lot of documentaries on that timeline in which we were saying global warming at first, and all of a sudden now we say climate change. And I think the overall message from that is to kind of lessen the wow factor of how much our, our world is changing. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's really that's a really interesting point. I think um, I almost kind of think the opposite in a way. Like I still okay. use global warming every now and then because I think you know one part of climate change is is the warming, right? On average, places are getting warmer and warmer. I think I think the real root of that is that like climate change is so much bigger than just warming, though. It's also like hurricanes becoming more often, wild like droughts becoming more often, and so I think like. People were really stuck on like just that warming and it became really controversial in and of itself. And now I think we're moving towards kind of a more holistic view of like it's it's change. And so some places are, most places are getting warmer, but every now and then you have one region that just due to like all of these global weather patterns ends up becoming much cooler than usual. Or Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting thing though. And I think in conservation in general, like language is super important too, because like it's, it can be right. such a depressing field. So there's a big focus on using language that's optimistic or language that is like rooted around solutions or inspiring action and change and stuff like that. That's a good point, yeah. Uh, it definitely encompasses more than just global warming. And if someone were to argue like, oh, global warming doesn't exist, like there's that viral video of um, a senator in the U.S. bringing a snowball into the, uh, <laughs> into the House or into the Senate floor and saying, oh, it doesn't exist. I think, yeah, if you if you say climate change instead, it kind of kind of expands your mind a bit on what sort of things are actually changing yeah mm -hmm. i never thought of it like that so basically uh the segment before this kind of talked about diversity um equity and inclusion within science in particular i i brought up the case about an incident that happened 
last year at the University of Ottawa. I find that anytime the University of Ottawa is in the news, <laughs> it is more likely the case that it's for something bad, <laughs> unfortunately. But in this particular case, it, it kind of spiraled out of control due to a number of factors, um, one of them being how a lot of the communication happened on social media. Um, a lot of leaked emails, a lot of leaked letters, um, exchanges between uh, faculty, between students, um, and it led to different avenues of, you know, what actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, so I just want to discuss that a little bit. So again, it's that U University of Ottawa incident that happened last year. Maybe you can, if you can remember, just talk about how you first heard about the incident and what your thoughts were about how the university responded to the student community's outrage. Yeah, yeah. No, I still remember Remember when I heard the news. I had just come back from like a walk outside and uh, I remember coming inside and opening up my phone, looking at Twitter, and then I guess I had seen that the initial tweet of the, the student who tweeted out the text from her email with a professor about the professor's use of the N-word in class. And then I believe the teacher used it again in the following class as a, as a discussion. So I remember reading that and hearing like that initial those initial reports of what what was happening and I just remember like bottom of and then I remember seeing the, the, the letter as well from the 34 professors and starting to see all of like some professors come out and say I also agree with that I remember seeing what really really got me um, I remember reading all this the first time and just being disappointed like like you said like it's always something bad with you Ottawa it seems and this was like <laughs> It was like another one of those. I was like, come on, not again. Like, no we can do better. Yeah. But then I remember seeing a tweet from a professor that I know quite well, actually, in my department in support of that letter. And that, like, kind of had my heart drop out a little bit. I was like, oh, man, like, I thought I thought the people that I knew and respected would, like, recognize, like, like the power of that word and how kind of mm -hmm. unacceptable it is to want to use that in a classroom and how it really doesn't have to do with academic freedom at all. It's just, just kind of decency and... Uh, and respect. Yeah. Um, so it, that really got me with seeing like people that I respected kind of sign on in favor of that uh, of that letter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it was weird. It felt like it was a desire to say something mm -hmm. versus academic freedom, right? Like academic freedom, I, I can see how it can come about that way, especially with the letter and then the petition that came out afterwards with yeah. over, I, I want to say 600 um, signatures. And I mentioned this in the segment be beforehand, but people that were most affected by the incident made a, a small percentage of the signatures that were a part of that petition. So it just seemed like a desire to say something destructive, which I found very peculiar. I thought it was funny as well, because like, you know, the argument around academic freedom seems so contrived to me because, like, it's not, nobody was saying we shouldn't talk about these ideas. The idea of, like, reappropriating a word, for example, like, those mm -hmm. discussions can and should happen, but it's like, you don't have to, you don't have to use these uncensored, really destructive, like, words you know are going to be controversial, right? Especially when right. people have told you that that's not, that's not acceptable or doesn't create a very welcoming environment or excludes them from, from learning. So I thought it was odd that like it had to be an all or nothing. Like we have to talk about these things and we have to use these words. Yes, yes. That was that seemed odd to me. Mm -hmm, I agree. And I, I had a discussion, I had the same discussion with an, another friend of mine who's also in science. And she was saying that if the professor kind of just reached out to anybody in the community, particularly in the BIPOC community of U Ottawa, you can automatically tell that it's not only controversial, 
as being an example of a word that's being reappropriated is also controversial. Mm-hmm. Within her own family, she and her father believe that it should never be said at all, ever. While her mother says, well, you know, as long as it's in an educational setting, it's fine. And her brother um, said, well, you know, it's, it's in music now, it's in um, pop culture references. Um, so it really doesn't matter anymore. Like, it actually is a reappropriated word, but within her own family, um, they have disagreements about the usage of it. So, yeah, no, it's, um, it, it blew my mind how the university kind of handled it. I thought one thing that was funny in the university's communication afterwards to you, one of the, uh, one of the big things that, that I remember as well was the first email or one of the first emails that the university president sent out, emailed out to all the students. The name of it was an appeal for calm and... Uh, and now infamous letter. Yeah, now infamous. What was it? An appeal for calm and, uh, and reflection. Yeah. That was it. And I remember immediately people in, in the black community were, I think, rightfully set off by this. It was just the most <laughs> extreme example of, uh, of tone policing and trying to characterize what was going on around this especially on the side of, of black people speaking out as, you know, aggressive and kind of intimidatory. So it was, that was, that was striking to me um, in terms of like language that the university could have used. That was, uh, I think they could have asked anybody from the black community, from <laughs> community of color, and they would have known immediately. I thought it was brilliant. Babakar Fay, the, the UOSU student president, his editorial, he had a, his appeal, his letter was called an appeal for conscience and action. Uh, <laughs> and I thought that was a brilliant, uh, uh, call back to to the president's letter. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's and the the letter will be referenced in the in the podcast description. It's a really good letter. Um, it's a long read, but it, it it's definitely informative. Something that the university did not do. It informed about not only the incident itself, but also about um, the perspective within somebody in the BIPOC community. Why why it truly is controversial, and if you're not a part of this community, um, it's it's really hard to see it from that perspective. And I think he elaborates on it very well and even teaches yeah. you about black history in, in, in Canada. Yeah, yeah. It was a really beautiful, is a and a whole essay basically, right? Like uh, right. it was much right. more in-depth than a letter. It was, And uh, unfortunately, the university was, was already in, in trouble in terms of racial discrimination about, you know, the carding incidents that happened. Um, mm-hmm. Could have been two or three years ago. I can't recall now. Yeah, two years ago. And... Two years ago, and and then, then the recent uh, hacking of printers mm-hmm. um, in my own building that I work at, and so the university was was already creating this this committee of addressing racial discrimination. Another incident happened, and instead of using this committee or the the topics and discussions that this com- committee already made to implement in these new communications. Uh, it, it seems like nothing was was learned. That was the downfall of their communication. It seems like over the past two years since the first incident that can be referenced, it seems like they haven't learned much. Yeah, that's a terrific point too. Like all of the, uh, after those, the Cardi and the racial profiling incident, and I think that was the summer of 2019 or the fall. Um, but I remember they had all these town halls as well after that, right? Where they were, Right. The, I remember the president, I went to the first one and, there was about two or three hundred people, I think, in in one of the lecture halls, and the president Jacques Raymond was sat at the front, and everybody, people one by one, kind of came up, and people from the Black community at University of Ottawa giving their testimony of things they had, things they had experienced and heard, and and different 
microaggressions or discriminations they'd experienced. And man, I sat through all of that and not not gained a single piece <laughs> of reflection from uh, from those. It was striking seeing that the Carlton's president as well had an email that they sent out that their president sent out immediately after um, the incident happened. And it, that letter was really strong in its language, like it condemned kind of use of the N-word in classrooms and mm -hmm. it really took a strong stance and it was everything that you would think somebody's letter would be if they had sat through all these town halls as well. But uh, right. so it was funny seeing that contrast between these two institutions, one of which with a pretty abysmal history of uh, discrimination in the last two years uh, and the other yeah. without. This kind of connects to my next question. So for yourself being a graduate student still early in your scientific career, what are your thoughts on the current status of uh, equity, diversity, and, and inclusion at the University of Ottawa? And how does this compare to your perspective of the general scientific community? You know, at UOttawa, it's, I think it's fairly poor, if I'm being frank. I think, you know, especially if we compare it to, to Carleton that has, that's in the same city, you know, under the same external relative conditions mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. the history of you know edi committees on you know in a consistent and kind of like formal manner across campus that history is much shorter at uottawa than it is at carleton you know looking at how their administration you know responds to events like like happened last year you know you see a stark difference there so right. you know i think at uottawa relative to other places it's maybe quite poor but at the same time there are a lot of people that try that are trying um, to improve edi across the campus it's happening in a very patchwork manner i think um and, and student-led i would say as well mostly student-led yeah it's the administration seems to like the higher you get up from you know department chairs to faculty uh deans to upper university administration it seems like there are just more and more shackles as you go up and the admin at least in my experience of trying to trying to improve some of these things at the university with, with others. It's, the further you go up, the less people are willing to, to make changes. But there are still people throughout that are, that are willing to make changes. My, my supervisor is the chair of the biology department, and he's really, really on top of these things and has been for a really long time. In our department, we have an EDI committee, mostly, by, mostly of students, but with uh, two professors that are really actively engaged. And it's been great to kind of try to improve equity both in terms of making classrooms more inclusive but also like trying to increase representation as well of, of seminar mm -hmm. speakers or of uh, hopefully even faculty that are incoming new hirings and stuff so it's yeah so i think you know generally the state of edi is pretty bad and on campus i don't know if it's much better <laughs> across academia and in terms of the numbers i think we're probably pretty close to par or maybe just a little below but there are people that are trying that to, to make things better. It's hard when it takes a, a culture shift, right, to, to really right, change things. Right. I am glad that you, you kind of see this more popularized now, the, these sorts of EDI discussions, seminars, heads of EDI at, at faculty, like you mentioned. Um, I think the Faculty of Medicine, we, we have somebody who heads um, a department on EDI at, at the Faculty of Medicine. These sorts of issues are becoming more um, into the public eye. And that's something that I think is unfortunately mainly student-led. Even if it is student-led and even if there are only a few people in in faculty that, that kind of think these are important issues, it is it looks like progress is being made. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It looks like there's progress being made. <laughs> it looks like. It looks like. Yeah. 
Ho- hopefully the statistics will will um, be be in their favor and our favor. Yeah, hopefully. How important do you think EDI is in order to increase and in support in the future? And um, have you yourself and maybe being this being uh, supervised by Dr. Jeremy Kerr, who is pretty prominent in Canadian policy in terms of science, if you've heard of any policy that seeks to increase EDI efforts in, in science, in, in Canada, employment, uh, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, as a black man, I think it's, you know, really important to, to improve and to keep progressing on these, these things. I've seen, you know, my personal experience, like, remembering from, like, the very first year of undergrad when I was here, every single year I've seen less and less black and people of color around me, like, every single step of the way. There's some that drop off, and that's, you know, that's something that happens across all the field. I'm sure you can probably relate to, but... So I think it's it's really critical to keep pushing on this. And yeah, it's nice to see some initiatives pop up. I've tried to I've tried to get more involved, especially as like I reached the end of my PhD trying to make a you know positive impact on the place around me a little bit. And and having a supervisor like Professor Kerr, who's you know really involved with NSERC uh, and mm-hmm. kind of on a national level, involved in science policy on a national level, it's really encouraging to see some of the things they're doing, like like requiring EDI statements on NSERC grants for, mm-hmm. for professors. You know, a little thing, and people complain about it when they're, you know, trying to, they're working with fungus, and now they have to write a statement about EDI on their grants, but it's, it's really important. You know, it gets people thinking about these things. Who are they choosing to be in their labs? Who are they accepting and not? Who are, you know, whose research are they promoting, and who are they collaborating with? So it's, it's important right. to get people thinking about these things. And in a big sense, that's slowly happening. But again, it's because it's a culture shift. It's a lot of the time the old, you know, the old guard that are that are limiting progress. I think in some ways, and mm-hmm. more and more new professors are really aware of the importance of EDI and aware of you know the extra steps that need to be taken to to make spaces more inclusive and and better environments for historically excluded groups. So, but yeah, it requires like that changing of the guard i think in a lot of cases and i even noticed while i was while i was applying for phd programs uh, something that i didn't notice when i was looking at master's programs or undergraduate programs even um, at the end of application web pages they would say something along the lines of we're striving for equity Um, we really admire and and want people who are minorities to uh, apply to these programs um, women, people with disabilities, um, aboriginals. I think those those small statements. Uh, I I do think they make a, an impact, even to just when you when you're filling out these applications, you kind of have imposter syndrome, right? Like you, you think, um, you know, do I have the the chops to do something like this? Those sorts of small sentences, um, mm-hmm. in terms of language, again, uh, it really makes a difference. No, definitely. Like a little bit of encouragement goes a, a huge way, right? So we talked a little bit about the implications of destructive words. Again, the the incident that happened, and how without understanding their history, we may never achieve achieve um, some sort of empathy towards those who are truly impacted. So I sent I sent this question to, to Peter before the interview, so I am curious. What is arguably the least destructive word in the English language? <laughs> I love this I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> you say yours first and I'll say mine after. Alright, yeah, yeah. I think so. I actually thought probably way too much about this. <laughs> 
good. I, I felt like it had to be something that, you know, because you could pick something like orange or like floof, and there's like no context. So I thought... Something I, that I makes tried, you smile, yeah. Yeah, but I, I tried to pick something that, that could be, you know, that is in the realm of, of destructivity, but completely fails at achieving that. So oh, okay. That's an interesting thought, way to yeah. do it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I came up with nincompoop. I thought that was... <laughs> Coincidentally, I used that word yesterday. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. Why is that? Why Why nincompoop? I thought, I mean, I just thought, like, as an insult, it's nominally an insult, right? And so it, it should be destructive, but I think it completely fails in every sense of that. There's no way I'm insulted if you call me a nincompoop. Like, if, <laughs> if anything, it's backfiring on its objective. And uh, so I thought it was the antithesis of of destructiveness in that sense but that's funny I'm, I'm just gonna quickly check if it's even a real word <laughs> true let me let me check it is holy crap yeah it's that's in the uh, oxford english dictionary so it's gotta be real that's awesome <laughs> okay that I'm beats mine that, yeah no mine, <laughs> mine's not as good as that uh mine was mine was just simply hello and and why is that so like it's it's like the universal greeting, obviously. Um, so it kind of connects people that way. Um, I thought about silly words. I kind of I think I, I kind of took the same route, but not in terms of um, the antithesis of destruction. But I was thinking of silly words. Why I settled on hello, which is not a silly word, but it's because you can kind of say it in different ways. You know, it can, it can mean a lot of different things. But I don't think you can ever say hello in like a mean or destructive way and i've really thought i've also thought really long about this <laughs> too long even but i i couldn't i couldn't figure any tone or any sort of context in which hello could be a bad thing a negative thing so that's why i chose it i love that that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> so yeah hello even hi hey those sorts of things yeah. uh, just the simple greeting i think is I would consider one of the least destructive words. But nincompoop, I think, tops it. So <laughs> That's on the top of my list now. But yeah, no, that's all, that's all the questions I had for Peter. So normally at the end of these interviews, I just like to summarize what we talked about in terms of final thoughts about EDI, about the status of the BIPOC community in, <laughs> at the University of Ottawa, or just maybe your experience about it and just some self-promotion if you want to shout out to anything that you are a part of yeah I, I mean it was great uh great great chatting i think you know it's funny how like all of this has been wrapped in like the idea of language um and that really threads through like all of these things so well from the science communication to the edi and i think you know those two concepts edi and science communication as well are like intimately linked in that the idea is making science more accessible right right um and so they're Kind of connected already there and and of course threaded through by the language that you, that we're using to communicate and communicate about things or language we're using to people so and then of course wrapped up by like hello nincompoop like this is uh, <laughs> it's probably the two least destructive combination of, of words right exactly but um but yeah it's been you know it's been great and it's always good chatting about these things and you know bringing the awareness about edi and you mm -hmm. know trying to help help that empathy click and like help people recognize like what what's going on outside of their their own bubble um 
mm-hmm. you know, for myself as well. It's always, I always appreciate having these discussions and hearing other perspectives too. So that was awesome. I guess one final send off. I mean, it's, it's Black History Month. So do, do your thing, support black businesses to spend some time learning about uh, black scientists or authors or uh, creators or anything. And I think uh, February 11th is also Women in STEM Day. So uh, yes. shout out yes. if you're... I guess it might not be February 11th coming up when when you listen to this, but <laughs> but uh, when you hear next, mark it in your calendar and uh, you know do something special for that. Thanks for having me on, though. I really really have appreciated this, and uh, thank you so much. No, thank you. Um, again, it's just it, it's an honor to kind of talk to you. Um, and I'll tell you why. Like when I when we when we presented at um, the, the the science communication lectures, like for example a TED Talk or media interview, I was honestly blown away about how well you communicated the science you do or the topic that you chose to do. The the science slams you did really helped in <laughs> producing the storytelling that I was doing for my for my piece for Science Slam Canada. And when I was looking for people to interview for this topic, obviously there there was a couple of people I had in mind. And uh, when I when I went to your website, I saw that there was a, there was a small section that said, you know, that you're interested in in all sorts of cool projects, and you know, if you ever have some collaboration idea, you know, just to DM you. And I think that sort of collaboration and willing and invitingness to to have these discussions is is admirable. Thank you, thank you. And uh, you just reminded me. Now I need to go look up your science slam for sure too. I don't think they have the video for it, unfortunately, but. Oh, no. I, I did put it on uh, as an episode in one of my um, my latest podcast episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like the piece that I actually did. It it's, has less mistakes, actually. So <laughs> when I was doing the real Sci Slam, I forgot a lot of the words because I was so nervous. Um, but this one, you, you'll get the full piece. So no mistakes. Awesome. Yeah, I'll check that out. Uh, so yeah, again, thank you for doing this. And uh, good luck in your in your in um, the rest of your PhD. I assume you're going to be finished soon. Yeah, hopefully this summer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so cool. I'm I'm super excited. Uh, best of luck in yours as well. Like you know, new country, new, new institution. Good luck with it. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. As promised, here's the major update on my end. I have moved to Dublin to start a PhD program. I'll give you more updates via bits and pieces throughout the season. So stay tuned, and hope you enjoy this new adventure with me. Remember to follow the Instagram page for visual updates, as well as to be entered into the draw for the custom butterfly-printed Metaphorgen shirt, which will be given out on the 30th episode. Until then, stay skeptical, but curious.